0: Father, we come and we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has been faithfully passed down from generation to generation to generation and that it's come to us. And we ask, God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and, and take um, our hearts that are um, dry and, and tender, and that you would take this flame of your word and the breath of your spirit and light us on fire. Help us to be like those two disciples who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they, they said, after he had explained his story to them, they said later, were our hearts not burning within us as he walked and talked with us along the way? Lord, would you cause your word um, to light that kind of fire in our hearts uh, this morning? That's what we long for. Um, would you do it in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <coughs> A man in his bathrobe looks sincerely into the camera and says, It's a big moment in a boy's life, a rite of passage, really. The scene shifts to a dad and his boy sitting side by side on a leather sofa. Opening the lid of an old trunk, dad pulls out a set of Viking horns, a Viking horn helmet, complete with pointed horns on it that just speak of power and greatness. And he gently places that on his own head Then, as he chokes back tears, the man places a smaller Viking helmet on the head of his son, and the man's voice continues, it's time to grab manhood by the horns. And the boy excitedly puts the helmet on, and the father continues, honor, pride, integrity, these are the sort of things you feel when you wear this helmet. And now, with a moment of a lifetime dramatic flair, the father hands his son another symbol of his newfound manhood, the remote control. The boy looks at the remote with wide-eyed wonder, and then he looks up at his father and says, Really? And with tears of pride in his eyes and a nod of his head, the father simply says, Yeah. The boy slowly, dramatically points the remote toward the big Samsung flat-screen TV on which a Minnesota Vikings game is in progress. The dad, overcome with emotion, puts his arm around his son and watches the game as his voice continues to explain the significance of the event. It's the job of a father to instill values in his son, And as the dad is talking, the scene cuts to his young son looking at an old photograph of his grandfather and his father, then a boy, both wearing their Minnesota Viking helmets. And in this house, the dad says, we value the Minnesota Vikings. Now it's back to the father and the son on the couch. Dad looks into the camera and says, the NFL. That's how I see it. The young father turns away from his son, again, broken up with emotion, and with a quivering lip says, Viking pride, man. And his son lovingly punches his dad in the leg and says, it's okay, dad. Perhaps you remember that commercial from 2008. Anybody remember that commercial? Exciting, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, There they are. On the screen for your pleasure. Uh, That uh, aired during the 2008 NFL football season to advertise Samsung's line of flat-screen TVs and you might think that this was just another marketers sarcastic look at American culture um, that marketers typically do to make a point but this commercial is actually based on a real family and a real family tradition. I uh, found the story on Samsung's website, which has now since been removed, but listen to what it said. The man's name was Per Jacobson. I think he was a, a true Viking. Per Jacobson from Duluth, Minnesota is a lifelong fan of the Minnesota Vikings. In fact, his father was a Vikings fan, as was his father before him. Now his son Nathan has come of age where he can assume his rightful place beside his father on the couch each Sunday. A ritual has been passed down from generation to generation, where the males of the clan don an actual Viking helmet as they watch the game together. Part of this ritual includes the fabled knocking of the horns, to celebrate a good play by the boys in purple. The final act of this entry into manhood is the ceremonial passing of the remote. So that commercial, though kind of silly, is actually a depiction of a true story. It makes me wonder, what would the next generation look like if today's Christian parents and other adults in the church took the discipleship of the church's children that seriously? The Jacobsons have clearly taught each generation of their boys the practice of and a passion for the Minnesota Vikings, the storied traditions of the Minnesota Vikings. And it has transformed their sons. So I imagine there will be faithful Viking football followers in the Jacobson family for generations to come or until the Minnesota Vikings no longer exist. But while the Jacobsons are... Successfully creating Disciples of the Vikings, Vikings, um, the American church is struggling to keep the next generation engaged with the practice of and a passion for the story of Jesus. Recent research from a variety of studies across denominational spectrums uh, indicates that almost 65% of teenagers who grow up in the church will leave the church by their second year in college. Now, that, those numbers depend on who you're talking to. But they're not, only, not only are they abandoning the story of Jesus, it seems that the American church kids are confused about what the story of Jesus really is and what it tells us about who God is and who we are and what life is about. Um, perhaps you've heard of the study that came out oh 15 years or so ago by the National Study of Youth and Religion uh, that studied thousands of American teenagers, church going teenagers, and they found that uh, what that the religion that America's church going teenagers uh, believe and submit to is what these researchers ended up calling moralistic therapeutic deism hang on, let me explain. These are the five things that they found American teenagers believe. And teenagers, hang on, I don't necessarily believe this is you. I'll get back to you in a second. But this is American teenagers in general who go to church. First, they believe that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Created it, watches over it, not necessarily involved with it. That's similar to what we call deism. Second, they believe God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That's the moralistic piece. God wants people to be good, to be moral. Third, they believe the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic piece. Life is about feeling good about oneself and being happy. Fourth, they believe God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. Again, that's deism. God made us, he's there, but he's not personally involved unless we absolutely need him. And finally, they believe that good people go to heaven when they die. That's another moralistic piece. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you don't. So, to sum it all up, what these researchers... Claim is that the default religion of American teenagers is life is about doing good and about feeling good and that's all that God is good for. Life is about doing good and feeling good and that's all that God is good for is to help me do good and feel good. Now, back to my friends, the the, uh, students in the room. I do not necessarily believe this describes you. I know many of you well enough to know this is not what you believe uh, the Christian life is all about. And I know your parents well enough to know that this is not what they believe or have taught you the Christian life is all about. But while I have your attention, I want to ask, I think it's fair to ask you and myself and every adult in this room as well, is this perhaps what we think the Christian life is about? Do we, if we were to boil it all down, do we think that the Christian life is just about doing good things, feeling good about myself, and getting God involved in that project? Maybe. Maybe. When I look at how I live and how I think about God and how I think about my life, is doing good and feeling good and getting God involved and in helping me do those two things, is that really how I would define what the Christian life is about? And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, yikes, maybe that is what I believe. I feel ashamed. I feel horrible. Maybe that's really what I think it's all about. If that's what you're thinking, good, I'm glad. Because maybe today is the day that you change your mind and that you get away from that understanding of what this is all about, what we're doing here, and you, you start to wonder and pursue and ask, God, what? so what is it about? If it's not just about doing good and feeling good and getting you to help me, then what is it all about? I hope. That that's the question you're asking. And I want to promise you that it's not about that. It's about so much more. So students, for the rest of the time, I'm going to pick on your parents and the other adults in the room. And I want you to listen in to what I have to say to them Okay, and to myself. So when I say parents and other adults in the room, it includes me as well. So as a follow-up to that little study that I just mentioned, a professor at Princeton named Kenda Creasy Dean thought she wanted to understand how how did the American church's kids come to believe this false gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism? And so she wrote a book called Almost Christian, what the faith of our teenagers is telling the American church. Listen carefully, especially adults, to what she said. The problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and that the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people focused primarily on folks like us. Which, of course, begs the question, she says, of whether we're really the church at all, if that's what we're teaching. She goes on, What if the blasé religiosity of most American teenagers is not the result of poor communication, but the result of excellent communication of a watered-down gospel, so devoid of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ, so immune to the sending love of the Holy Spirit, that it might not be Christianity at all. She says, what if the church models a way of life that asks, not for passionate surrender, but for ho-hum assent? What if we are preaching moral affirmation, a feel-better faith, and a hands-off God, instead of the decisively involved, impossibly loving, radically sending God of Abraham and Mary, Who desired us enough to enter into creation in Jesus Christ, and whose spirit is active in the church and in the world today. If this is the case, if theological malpractice explains our teenagers' half hearted religious identities, perhaps most young people practice moralistic therapeutic deism not because they reject Christianity. But because this is the only Christianity they know. Mountain Fellowship, listen. This loss of a generation that learns and loves and lives in the story of Jesus, the true story about the only true and living God, is what Asaph is concerned about in Psalm 78. Last week, we looked at Psalm 127, and we remember that Solomon taught us that our children, the next generation, are arrows in the hands of a warrior, that the church's quiver is full of arrows that he's given us to disciple and deploy as weapons of mass renewal in the places where they will worship, work, live, and play. That was last week. Listen to what Psalm 78 says about the parents who deploy, about the generation, about the adults who deploy these arrows. Verses 56 and 57. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but they turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, and they twisted like a deceitful bow. Folks, if our children are our arrows, we are the bows. And the problem that Asaph uncovers is that if a generation strays from God, it's because they've been fired from a twisted, deceitful bow. So we need to talk about us. We need to talk about us. Years ago, I heard uh, Kevin Huggins, who was a uh, youth ministry parenting adolescence expert, um, say this. He said, parenting is more about what God needs to do in the hearts of parents than it is about what we think needs to be done in the heart of our kids. Parenting is God's second chance to get to our heart." Parenting is more about what God needs to do in the hearts of parents than it is about what we think needs to be done in the hearts of our kids. <coughs> so, as we look at Psalm 78 this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to try to move through this quickly. I know it's a lot, but we're going to read sections of it. I'm going to say a few words about each section. Um, but uh, Asaph says, that what he's presenting in Psalm 78 is a parable. A parable is, is a story that comes alongside our story and helps us to understand where we are not fitting in God's story and, and showing us how to get there. And so what he uses is the story of God's people, Israel, as a parable to teach us lessons about what is most important when we think about passing God's story on to the next generation. So, I'm going to begin with verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And I would invite you to get in your bulletin and follow along, because you're going to need this in front of you. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Why? That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Why? Verse 7 is key. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So in these first eight verses, we we learn again, our calling as God's people, our calling as the adult generation in this church is to grab disciple-making by the horns and to remember and tell God's storied tradition and pass it on to the next generation. That's our calling and what is that storied tradition? Verses 4 and 5. We are to pass on the works of God. Look at verse 4. The glorious deeds, the works of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. That word wonders is one that's used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament over and over again. It's not referring to just wonders in creation. It's referring to redemptive saving acts of God the things God did to save us. These are God's works of love for us. But in verse 5, we're also to pass on the testimony or the law. Those are two different words for the teaching, the words of God. So we're to pass on the works of God and his love for us, and also the words that interpret those works and tell us how we are to love what God has done learn what God has done, and live in it. And it reminds me of when the Ten Commandments were given. We often forget that when Moses gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, he said this, this is what God said, actually, not Moses. Moses recorded it. God said this before he gave the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of slavery. In other words, what we did in the confession earlier, I am your savior. I am your creator. I am your king. I love you. I brought you out of bondage to slavery. Now, here's how I want you to live. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first four commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the last six commandments. The works of God's love for us. He loved us first. And the words that tell us how to love God and love others because he first loved us. That's what we're passing on to the next generation. And here's what we're aiming for in verses 6 through 8. This is the target. This is what we're aiming for to see happen in the next generation that they might know these things, the works and words of God. Verse 7, here's the key. So that they should set their hope in God. Not forget the works of God and keep His commandments. That's three things. It's something they do with their heart. They set their hope in God. They place their trust, their hope. Everything They're hoping for and living for and looking for. They set it in God with their heart. They don't forget the works of God. They use their head to remember the way God has loved them through the work he has done on their behalf. And then they use their hands to keep his commandments. So, Our goal, as we said last week, for our children is that they would learn how to repent, how to shift their hope from other things, from other gods and other stories, to trust God, that's repentance, that they would believe that the works of God done on their behalf uh, through Jesus are for them, and that God loves them, and that they would then Trusting him, obey him, follow him. That's what verse 7 is saying. That's our aim. That's what we want for them. And as we said last week, the question is, is that what is happening in us, in this generation, in our generation, parents and other adults? And so then Asaph then uses the rest of uh, this psalm to kind of give us uh, an opportunity to check our hearts, to see where we are. Just as uh, you have a panel of lights on your dashboard that will flash when something is wrong under the hood, Asaph is going to give a series of lights on our dashboard. And then he's going to tell us that when those lights go off, this is what's going on under the hood. And guess what? We're going to look at those next week because it's too good for me to try to rush through in the zero number of minutes that I have. And I want to encourage you, parents and adults um, in our church, God is after you. The fact that he's given us this quiver full of children uh, to shape and sharpen for effective flight for the sake of his kingdom is a gift, Psalm 127 said last week. But it's a gift in the sense that through parenting and through discipling the next generation, he gets to remind us again of what we're supposed to be about. He gets to come after our hearts. And uh, so next week, I'll invite you uh, to come and Let's see what those lights on the dashboard might be um, that can help us understand what's going on under the hood in my heart uh, that makes me so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God I love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the beginning (laughs) of Psalm 78. And uh, I ask that you would begin to help us to ask the question: Do I really believe that the life you called to me, called me to live, is just about doing good and feeling good and getting you to help me with that pro- uh, project? Is that really, is that really where my hope is? And I pray that you would stir in me. And stir in our elders, and stir in our deacons, and in every adult in this congregation a desire to live in your story as it is really told, not as we think it should be, or we've maybe been taught it is. Would you give us a hunger and a desire to live in your kingdom, not our own? And Jesus, as we think about the task that you've given us as this generation to pass on your story to the next generation, it's overwhelming. And we need your strength. We need your help. We need your encouragement. And so you've invited us to come and sit and have a meal with you so that you can feed our hearts so that we can acquire a taste for the king and his kingdom. So even now as we come, would you Um, help us to taste and see that you're good so that you will be where our hearts set their hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.